the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. James Darnell today in studio with us. A look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. More information, by the way, on the book at savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com. We were talking about this paradigm shift that we've seen take place in the church today. And I'm curious, as we sort of take the, the yardstick to the moral health of America today, as we take the patient's temperature, so to speak, we, we see that we are in this moral quagmire at, at, at many levels. Um, we are victims of moral uh, relativism. Is this the product of the slippery slope of theological relativism that has said it's not so much about preaching the exclusive truth of the claims of Christ, but rather the inclusive approach? Because after all, we want people to feel good about themselves, because if they don't feel good about themselves, Mm -hmm. they won't show up to church on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're right. And I I also think that it has a um, – there's within inside that kind of a secret – uh, type of uh, movement to eliminate words like sin and uh, uh, words like rebellion and disobedience and uh, what we would call the old orthodox kind of way of looking at our faith. Yeah, when's the last time and, the preacher from the pulpit used a term like atonement? There you go. Or a propitiation. That's right. These, these words are being uh, set aside and, uh, interestingly enough, not being replaced. The, the words now are love, 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 forgive, forgive, and forgive, and uh, be inclusive, and, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. So uh, things like, uh, the, the, for example, the, the, the Ten Commandments uh, are not even looked at anymore. Uh, and really, half of those commandments, you know, are about the love that Jesus uh, prescribed for us, and the other half are, are about the love that God has for us. And yet... At the same time, when Jesus answered that question for the Pharisees, what, 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 they, he, he, he said to them, look, the commandments are all wrapped up in just two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. What that was was a combination of all ten of the commandments that Moses uh, had written down from God, and he brought that all together. The Pharisees didn't catch it; they weren't they, they they didn't quite understand what he was trying to say. But the interesting thing is, as he went on to teach his disciples, and as he became the head of our church today, and Paul began to unwrap some of Jesus's teachings, what we find out is is that it's important that a person knows what they're repenting from where they're coming from, why they are sinful, why we were created the way we were created, and what happened to us at the very beginning. And as they follow that through the Scripture, they see that they, all the Scripture from Genesis 1 the whole way through to Revelation is all about Christ. It's all about Him, His plan of repentance, 
And it's about the, the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to bring us back into a relationship with Him. And what the church has decided to do today is to say, look, if you want to be a Christian, fine. Some churches even j- just pray this prayer right after me. And you say the little prayer, congratulations, you're a champion, you're in. And then they move forward with their agenda, their values, their plan, their idea, in order for us to make the contribution. And I can't overestimate that. The whole issue here is, is what is it that we have to offer? And when we do that, what we do is we say, it's not about Jesus anymore. He's done what he's going to do. It's about us and what we can offer and what we can do. That's why you see some of the major pastors uh, that are out there today uh, in swallowing the whole idea of universalism and some of the other concepts that are going on because they, they actually believe that they can make a contribution that could perhaps even change God's mind. But if our central focus is not on man's sinful fallen condition having offended a holy, righteous God and the need for shed blood, for remission of sin, for reconciliation unto God that leads to relationship, if that fails to be the central focus, then doesn't this become much like simply performance-based religion, it's behavior modification, and in which case, what sets us apart from any other cult out there that does the same thing? There are plenty of cults out there that teach, hey, don't beat your wife, it's not good to drink and smoke, Take get her better care of your bodies, pay your taxes on time, I mean, that's all performance-based. Mm-hmm. But what it does is, is uh, it's performance-based, and it is behavior modification, and um, it, it, it's a way of I don't know how to say it other than to say it's a way of bringing man to a level where he feels being made in the image of God, he now has the right to control his life and the way things get done. So it's no longer about servitude to the Lord, but rather the roles are flipped. Suddenly now God becomes a a cosmic bellhop who is at our disposal to meet our every whim, Mm -hmm. make sure that we are fully satisfied in life so that if we're not as healthy as we want to be, wealthy as we want to be, we just go and say, hey God, what's the deal here? Aren't I supposed to be abundantly blessed? One major preacher, I won't name any names, but he's based in Houston, Texas, (laughs) announced recently from the pulpit that the core purpose of Christ's coming was to give us abundant life. Well, there you go. That's a perf- that isn't what the Bible teaches. No, but that's a perfect example of where man makes his contribution. He has given us abundant life. We, we, what Jesus tries to teach his disciples and then his disciples uh, passed on, not only to the Jews, but also Paul, being a Jew, passed on to the Gentiles, was the whole idea of character, and that's where that comes from. It comes from Jesus' teaching on character. And what Jesus said is, yes, there's a blessing that goes with the character, but what we have done is we've decided not to take the biblical interpretation of what that really is. What we've decided to do was redefine it. So if you feel good, if you are experiencing a, a, a good religious moment, if you are worshiping and you are happy, if you are uh, financially blessed and whatever, then you're doing things right. 
if you're not within that abundant living, which is not what that means at all in Scripture, but if you're not within that abundant living, then what you've done is is uh, you need to give more. You need to uh, perhaps do more good deeds. You need to um, uh, fellowship more in a way that will help you to grow up and mature as a Christian. And they would say, function in the kingdom of God more uh, by your tithes and by your offerings and by your works. Well, what's the difference between that then and uh, the approach of of creating an industry as opposed to building God's kingdom? That's exactly what they've done. They've built a church industry. And that's what these these leadership conferences that pastors are going to today, the, the, the majority of them are all about you becoming a leader that can lead your flock to a new level, a higher level of responsibility and accountability for who you are. And they never talk about who you are in Christ. It's who you are and what you have to offer each other and what you have to offer God. How you see yourself, how others see you, as opposed to how God sees you. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with how God sees you. It's, it's almost like it's passe. You know, Jesus went to the cross. He died for your sins. Wasn't that wonderful? You know, he gave you eternal life. That's even nicer. But now culture has changed. Uh, um, we're more sophisticated now. Uh, science is our, uh, is our God. And what we need to do now is we need to understand how we can make our contribution how we can do it without God. That's why we we spend a lot of time at the very beginning of Saving the Saved uh, talking about what are the laws and the beliefs of a secular society that knows that the way they can get done what they want done is to compromise the church. And uh, second of all, uh, knows that if they take the church and get it compromised, they can then have the end result, which is a, a godless nation. And that godless nation and a compromised church allows uh, a new uh, way of governing, uh, not only globally, but in America, but also in a person's personal life. The thing we're missing here is, and, and that they're missing, is this is not a, um, a collective salvation approach. Uh, God is looking at us individually. And each person has to be accountable to God for who they are and what their life, how they've lived their life and what their life is all about. And, and what the church is doing now is making it more of a collective salvation. So that, you know, if we're doing a lot of good things together and if we're thinking the right things and if we're imagining what could happen, uh, a lot of books out today. Imagine this. Imagine that. Imagine heaven. Imagine hell. I mean, you know, what's that all about? And what that's about is helping people to let loose of the scriptural understanding of things and help them to use who they are to try to determine what they want to experience of a relationship with their God. So the Bible then goes from having been foundational to the theological underpinnings of the church to a companion reference guide. It's, it's a side manual. It's uh, yeah. some interesting notes that we can quote from that perhaps has a nice poetic flow to it. Let's get up and recite a passage or two out of the book of Psalms that makes us all feel good. Yes. But let's not dare use that yeah. as the foundational underpinning yeah. of our faith. And the Bible is no longer, uh, in, in many uh, thinking of many pastors and churches across America, which Barna has made very clear in his studies, that 
over 51% of them uh, do not hold a, a biblical worldview. 57% of evangelicals believe that there are many ways to get to heaven. So Absolutely. So there you go. That gives you an idea of what's happening and how powerful it is and how it's really affecting what's going on in the life of a, a Christian today. There's no wonder why people out there are confused. It's no wonder why they go to their church and when you, we tell them to be salt and light, they're saying, oh, well, my pastor wouldn't have that. Uh, we're, we're in the middle of a dream and putting together our new core values and and uh, uh, doing our leadership like they do at, uh, at um, you know, uh, one of the major companies, Chevron or something. That That's what the church is all about. It is not. It's, it's become a community center to be able to deal with issues in the local community, but to deal with them with the very best knowledge that man has to offer and to put that little tag on you that says, Christian. And when that tag Christian is there, even though they're being persecuted for it now, they believe that over a period of time that will eventually melt away because the new definition of what a Christian is will not include an infallible, inerrant scripture. It will not include... Um, a Savior that has brought us from sin to salvation. It will not include any kind of living style, our sanctified life, our holiness, or whatever. We will be moral in terms of what morality is, plurality and morality is accepted within our society. James Darnell, a look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. The book available on the web. More information at savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. James Darnell with us today. A look at his new book, Saving the Saved, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to a Post-Christian America. More information available on the web at savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com. You made reference to this moral morass that we currently find ourselves in, and there seems to be an interesting shift that has taken place here, where traditionally, as the church looked at the culture, the desire was to impact the culture and change the culture. But as you're suggesting, it seems today as if more of our approach seems to be pacifying the culture and embracing the culture. Sort of this, well, if you can't beat them, join them approach. Yes. That's exactly why we put together this company called Netaffirm, because Netaffirm is is a word that describes bringing people together under the scriptures. What What is happening in the church is they're bringing people together under the church. Now, the interesting thing about that is, is that Yes, a pastor's willing to say, or a church leader is willing to say, um, I believe that Christ is the foundation of the church, or, or, or Christ is the cornerstone of the church. But that's as far as they take it. Uh, what they do now is they take it and they say, yes, Christ is the cornerstone of the church, but we are asked to imagine what that church can be like in our society. And therefore, by embracing society... Um, let me give you an example. Um, you know, I, I, I pastored for, you know, uh, many, many, many years. Uh, but uh, now I enjoy just talking to pastors and, and finding out what they're going on. And I had a pastor just a few days ago say this to me. Um, I had a conversation with a person who's living a, um, a lifestyle that is uh, not in agreement with Scripture 
or with the teachings of Christ. And that person argued with this pastor for an hour that they are a Christian, that they are committed to Christ, that Christ died on the cross for men, and they have an alternative lifestyle that Christ has accepted because it's part of who they are and what their life is all about. And therefore, uh, there is not this exclusiveness that, that the older Orthodox uh, religion of America uh, tries to push on people or are, are used to make people feel bad about themselves. What they're doing now is, is they feel that the church needs to be changed. It needs to get with the culture. It needs to, to come up to a level where God is, is seeing people and forgiving them and loving them and accepting them regardless of how they're living their life. Uh, but it, more than that, regardless of how they feel about growing in their relationship to God and, and functioning in the kingdom. The scripture makes it very clear that our job is to be discipled so that we can disciple others into the kingdom, both evangelistically and through discipleship, so that we grow in our personal faith. That's not the goal of the church anymore. Matter of fact, uh, there's a subtitle to this book. It says, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to the Post-Christian America. The greatest omission is discipleship. And when I go places to talk about discipleship, they look at me like, uh, what do you mean? Or what is discipleship? Or perhaps they ponder and say, oh, you mean membership class. Oh, oh yeah, there, we know what that is, membership class. They have no idea. The, the, the church today, when you talk about discipleship, and of course this is not exclusive with every church, or, or you know, inclusive of all churches. Uh, uh, there are many good churches out there and many pastors with great hearts doing the right thing. And I want to say that up front. But at the same time, it's overpowering what is going on in our country with this idea that words like discipleship, sin, Jesus Christ, infallibility of the scriptures are all out the door. Now, let's be cautious about something here. We have been down this path before. Paul's warnings to the church at Corinth. We had the Reformation, the first great awakening, the second great awakening. What is different about the spiritual crossroads that we're at today um, where we see the, the church finding itself knowingly or perhaps unknowingly in this position. The big omission, as you speak to, is this lack of biblical discipleship. So then it begs the ultimate key foundational question. We're at this crossroads again today. What do we do to bring the church back on track so that it comes back in alignment with not some church growth seminars I notion of what the church looks like, but rather with what God says he wants the church to look like. Yeah, let's just focus that just a little bit more because you're, you're right, you're on something that's critical uh, to where we're going. And that is, if you as a Christian are waiting for the church and the pastor to do this right, it may never happen. Uh, yes, there are some churches that are really excited and want to do it right and want to stand up against the culture and want to uh, carry the word forward. But what can you do if, if this is happening where you are and you see these words being espoused from the pulpit and you see the kinds of things that are going on in the church and you know 
uh, that there's something wrong, and the more of your faith, which you know is spiritual growth, you're just not getting there. It's not coming to you. So what do you do? Here's, here is what I believe are the three alternatives. And there may be others. But first of all, you can stay where you are and try and be salt and light. And um, as, as Einstein would say, good luck. <laughs> because that's not the facts that are going to change the, the environment. It, you, you, you do, there's no way that, that you alone as salt and light in a community that has bought in to this pluralistic worldview is is going to be able to make a, a, a great significance there, a change. But I'm not saying you can't be salt and light there, but I'm saying that to, to make the church change, that's just not going to happen. The institutional church is strong in this direction. The second thing is that you find a church where they are discipling. And you can leave, and you can go to that church, and you can say, look, I want to go deeper in my faith. And I know that's a dirty word some places. So this is what we're talking about. Then there's a third alternative. You can find other Christians who believe what you believe and know that there's something more, and you can get them together. I call it the rise of the fellowship. It's the last chapter in the book. And the rise of the fellowship says basically this, that you you are in a place in your life. There is hope for the church, and there are many churches that are going to change. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But the the church itself, as a community institution, has an agenda. And that agenda has been set by maybe conferences, denominations, by pastors, by leaders, uh, by conferences, uh, that kind of thing. That agenda is not going to change. What's going to have to happen is the people are going to have to make the changes. You pull us essentially back to the model of what the first century church looked like. Right. That's exactly where we're going. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were not about to change. Uh You got it. But the people said, we've seen him, we've experienced him, we've walked in fellowship with him, Mm -hmm. we wish to be disciples of his. Yep. Exactly. What I did in this chapter, as chapter 12, and, and uh, you can get this thing and read it for yourself. It's just fascinating. I went back to 1979 when I was in, in a particular pastor, and I talked about the, the pressures of the denomination and the organization on me as a pastor to do what they wanted done. And uh, even though you have some autonomy in a church, perhaps you started a church in your garage or in your home and all the rest of it. If you're inclusively pulling in the community with the hopes that somehow they'll be evangelized by sitting under your message, um, that is no longer, how do I say this nicely? It's, it's, it's just something that doesn't happen. What happens today is the church, when they bring people in or allow people to come in with certain feelings like, I need to have more abundance in my life. I, I, I have financial and physical needs. I have this, and God needs to supply these for me. When those kind of people are attending the church, they're not interested in what Jesus did on the cross. What they're interested in is what God can do for me now. And, and that's what it's all about. And if you can't do it at that church, they may find it comfortable enough to get up and leave and go somewhere else. So what I did was I shared... How I did this, I started with the youth, since I was not allowed to do it with the, the adults. 
And what I did was I got them into fellowships. Not a church, not a Bible study, not a small group, not a a lifelong learning organization. But what I got them into was a simple fellowship. And what we did is we talked about the genuineness of a relationship with Jesus Christ, what that looks like. And then all the things that Christ has done for me, who am I in Christ? So you're essentially fostering an environment where true discipleship can take place. That's correct. And what happened was that youth group in that over 2,000-member church of, of 25 young people, 25, three years later, were 375 kids. And they were junior high and senior high coming together. Why? I wasn't going out in street corners preaching. I wasn't preaching from the pulpit. I was the youth director. What was I doing? What I was doing is I was building in Christ into their life. And I was showing them how to be a disciple. I was teaching them character, holiness, righteousness. The fact that Jesus said, be ye perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. It is possible for us, through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, to do a lot of wonderful, great things that can transform not only our lives, but the lives of others around us. And then you get phone calls 30 years later from a young woman who is now married to a pastor and says, you know, Pastor, I I never told you this, but, you know, I, I grew up without a father. And my fellowship became my father. You were like a father to us. And I felt, how interesting. I had no idea. I didn't know that about her and her life and her family. But the fellowship became an organization that helped her to see Christ in her life and to grow in that relationship. They were accountable to each other, and they learned to grow. So Some pastors uh, would be happy to have 375 uh, people just in a church. And these were youth. That grew from a very small core. And that same principle that Paul used in developing the churches in the Scripture, which is what chapter 8 is all about, Paul and how he did it, can be applied today and can be applied today through starting small fellowships in the church and starting small fellowships outside the church. Those same kind of things. The, The plan of Christ for our personal life and for the church is not to do it our way. He has a way. And when we get into that way and do it his way, great things happen. And they happen in the lives of people, and people are blessed. And if they understand anything about Jesus' teaching about character, you you want to be blessed financially, you want to be blessed uh, spiritually and, and with healing and all the other kinds of things. Once you've got an understanding of how those things work. They're all the Beatitudes. They're not the be happy attitudes. They're not the, 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 the attitudes that make you feel good about yourself. They're not the attitudes that give you abundant life. That's not their life. They're the attitudes that help you to learn how to depend on Christ for your life and w- how you react to that when people persecute you and when you have to suffer for that. And Christ rewards you for that. And so these are the kind of things that the church can do now. You're asking, what can we do? This is what we can do. If you're lucky, you get a pastor like the one I spoke to you about uh, earlier out in Idaho who um, has figured out uh, Jim uh, uh, Putman, who is, uh, with, uh, wrote a book called Real Life Discipleship and has transitioned his entire church into a real-life ministry. Uh, it, 
being able to do everything that the church does uh, being a mission of discipleship. Calling the church back to its first love, calling the church back to teaching true disciples. Mm -hmm. A look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. Its author's been my guest on this edition of Lifeline, James Darnell. More information on the book, by the way, simply go to the web. It's SavingTheSaved.com. That's SavingTheSaved.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. For those who have loved ones currently in the hospital, who have perhaps lost a loved one, it raises many of the why God questions. Why does God allow things to happen like this? And when we're in these kinds of times, whether we're talking about the tragedy of what unfolded yesterday in Boston, to the loss of a child, to maybe just the day-to-day challenges that we face in life, oftentimes we we feel as if we're kind of groping about, and we're, we're wondering in the middle of the darkness of our experience, how do we find God? Coincidentally, a new title of a book called called Finding God in the Dark, and it's co-written by my next guest, Ted Gluck. Ted, of course, has been on the program previously. We talked to him uh, some months ago regarding his best-selling book, Dallas and the Spitfire. Back again to join us today, and Ted, it's always great to have you on the show. Hey, Craig, thanks so much for having me. really appreciate it. Boy, the timing of our conversation today in the wake of the tragedy of Boston yesterday, again, it just touches on so many levels emotionally and and spiritually. Kind of give me your overall sense, um, particularly in the spirit in which uh, you wrote this book along with Ronnie Martin. Um, We're in these moments, be it the tragedy of yesterday to simply maybe losing a job, losing a loved one. We grapple with the sense of where God, why God? Yeah, we really do. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. These are these are existential questions. You know, these are questions that that strike to the core of our existence, and um, they really strike to the core of how it is that we think about God. And um, you know, as as I prepared for the show tonight, I, I knew you were going to ask me about this, and I was I was talking it over and, and praying about it with my wife, and I was reminded of the verse in First Thessalonians that says. You know, as Christians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. And, you know, but we still grieve, you know, and, and whether you're intimately involved in a situation like this or, or whether you're just kind of observing it from the outside, I mean, you're grieved. And I'm reminded of the, the doctrine of total human depravity, you know, the idea that, that we're all sinners in this world with sick hearts and that there's no hope for us and there's there's nothing good apart from Christ. And I think, you know, what what you take from this, Events. I mean, you watch the media and you hear things like, you know, we're going to do everything we can. And, you know, there's all kinds of kind of governmental slash military finagling going on. And, and on one hand, you, you root for that and you're, you're hopeful that something will be done. But, you know, as Christians, we know that um, apart from the cross and apart from Christ, you know, there's really there's not a good answer. You know, there's not a great hopeful thing that, that Obama or anyone else can say to people to really make them feel better. So, you know, I think for us maybe the takeaway is an opportunity to, to, to recognize the sin in our own hearts. And, you know, much of my book deals with that, you know, this idea that, you know, it wasn't until I really humbled myself and threw myself at the foot of the cross that I had any joy and any peace in this life. And I think we were reminded that we don't find our joy and peace in circumstances or situations. You know, it, it isn't God's job to, to make everything perfect for us. Um, uh, but he does find us. He does seek us out, and he does give us the opportunity to to humble ourselves and and find joy and peace in him. You know what you say. I know 
even with my listeners eavesdropping on this conversation right now, we, we, we resonate with what you say. We, we certainly readily give a mental assent to your observations. And yet oftentimes, isn't there that disconnect that we experience, meaning that we understand, for example, if we want to just kind of uh, coldly in a very calculated manner dissect what transpired yesterday, it is you know, man's depravity, it is separation of God, from God by, by sin, it is our inclination to do wrong and evil and the influence of the enemy in our lives. We understand all of that, and we can certainly in many ways kind of pigeonhole or categorize the pain of yesterday day into those categories we give complete total mental assent to those realities and yet there's this disconnect where emotionally though we're still saying but wait a minute god i mean aren't you supposed to come in and kind of you know save the day uh, we look at this and say well you know of all the people that died yesterday uh, three all told why did one of them have to be an eight-year-old boy and suddenly now we're kind of emotionally uh, and spiritually wrestling with god over these things yeah, we are, you know, and I, I I fully agree. And I think, you know, for those of us who, who grew up Christian or grew up in evangelical homes like I did, I mean, I think I, I spent a lot of years just intellectually assenting to things and not really feeling or experiencing them. And there's this this strange tension in the church where, you know, you're you're clinging to truth and you have biblical truth, but yet you, you still want to experience things. You want to feel comforted. And, you know, for me... Uh, I think the Bible is full of, of of examples of people who, you know, cling to cling to Christ and cling to cling to God in the midst of really horrible things that are happening to them. And on one level, you you, you don't really maybe find comfort in their stories, but I, I find comfort in the idea that there's a model for how we can cling to the Lord in those times, how we can cry out to the Lord, how you know King David who. You know, the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, but but was also this horrible sinner. You know, he was a, an adulterer and a murderer, and he has the audacity and the and the courage really to ask God for a clean heart, and then he asked God to restore his joy. And this is, you know, when people are pursuing him and and chasing after him to take his life. You know, he even he even clings to to the Lord for joy in that. And you know, as to how that comforts. You know, someone who's who's grappling with the reality of yesterday. I don't know, but I'm but I'm glad it's there, and I'm glad you know the Bible gives us a, a model for how we're to do that. And I I found, I mean, my experience has been um, that there's really been no earthly comfort outside of that. And you know, sometimes we can't explain these things away. We can't, um, you know, God doesn't let us know immediately why it's happening. Um, but but that feeling of joy and peace, even in the midst of uh, of life's terrible storms. I mean, that's something that uh, experientially we can we can look to the Lord and just say thank you. There's one thing though that tends to kind of complicate this. And after a brief time out, I want to kind of dig deeper. We we spoke of the the, the mental ascent to what we understand to be true from God's perspective, from God's word. Then there's kind of the emotional struggles that we go uh, go into where we we understand intellectually what's going on and yet emotionally still there's that sense of disillusionment and fear and doubt and unbelief the third aspect that kind of complicates this scenario is the big cover-up and we'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out best-selling author ted cluck is with us today a look at finding god in the dark i'm craig roberts back with more of the conversation as lifeline continues and now back to lifeline with craig roberts Continue our visit with best-selling author Ted Cluck. He, along with co-author Ronnie Martin, have written a new book called Finding God in the Dark. 
Now, we talked a bit about that sense of giving mental assent to what we know are the realities of what's going on in these kind of circumstances, Ted, and yet oftentimes... Uh, being just overwhelmed by emotional senses of, of doubt and fear and disillusionment. But then there's kind of the other third item that I think tends to complicate this, and you talk about it in the book. It's something that we evangelicals in particular seem to be very adept at, and that is um, kind of faking our way through pain, but, you know, painting on the smile and, and getting past the greeter at the door at church on Sunday or, you know, uh, giving the obligatory, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? When, in fact, we're really not. And I'm wondering if sometimes that sets up a barrier that really blocks us from the ability to deal with how we're feeling and kind of find the sort of a, a peace and relief that we seek. Yeah, I think it absolutely does. And I think, you know, I wrote about it in the book. I was absolutely guilty of that for so many years, you know. The issues were different for me in that, you know, our our hard times, our dark places, if you will, were infertility, um, a failed adoption, um, some vocation-related failures that I was experiencing. And instead of, you know, being humbled and clinging to the cross and those things, for a lot of years, I just got more bitter, you know, more bitter, more cynical. Um, but week after week, day after day, you know, Sunday after Sunday, I would go into church and, and you know, I was I was everybody's buddy and, and the backslapping lobby guy with a smile for everybody. But inside, I was really dying, you know, and I was really struggling with, you know, how do I love a God who uh, would put me through this, quite frankly, was, was my thought process. And um, it was really tough, you know, and, and thankfully, the, the same institution that was hard for me in that, the church, um, it was tough to go to church and it was tough to see everybody else, I thought, prospering. You know, while I was kind of circling the drain, I thought, but um, it was that same institution that ended up being, you know, such a help and such a comfort for me as the Holy Spirit uh, pursued me out of that. I guess the irony is that a lot of us are often going through this, whether it's the way in which a whole community suffers, such as in the wake of the Boston bombing, or individual families. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job. As you point out in your case, it was an adoption that right on the cusp of, of everything coming together, um, your uh, your little Ukrainian daughter, who who was literally the, the, the sister of, of one of your adopted boys, uh, the, another couple stepped in and the law did what it did uh, thousands of miles away, and that whole adoption process fell apart. That created a great deal of pain in your life, and I guess maybe the issue oftentimes here is when we're going through pain or fear or doubt or disillusionment, uh, we want to keep up a happy face. You know, nobody typically posts on Facebook what a terrible day that they're having or what an awful meal that they had. They we all tend to kind of want to be uh, happy and, and, and sort of, you know, put on the dog, so to speak, and yet behind that mask oftentimes lurks an awful lot of pain. Yeah, that's so right, man. I, I think oftentimes we're our own best press agents. And, you know, from being in Christian media and Christian entertainment, as I am, you know, there, there is this often kind of creepy, you know, motivation to self-promote. And um, I find I found myself doing a ton of that, you know, uh, again, on Facebook, my Facebook persona was, you know, I was this happy, successful guy with a great family and, um, you know, all kinds of success and all kinds of exciting things happening. But, you know, for anybody who knew me then or, or anybody who was close to me then, you know, the opposite was really true. And um, it wasn't until, you know, I heard some convicting preaching. Um, it wasn't until I, you know, I went to some friends of mine in the church, uh, a pastor and an elder, and just said, look, I'm I'm struggling here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really dying here. I'm really bitter. And uh, I need your help, you know. 
um, thank God, you know, for me that the Holy Spirit pursued me in that way and, uh, and, and kind of led me to do that because I think even though the circumstances really haven't changed, you know, this book isn't one of those stories where, you know, we pray a couple of times and then we get rich and have a bunch of kids and everything starts going right for us. You know, the, the circumstances are the same essentially. Um, but, but Christ has given me a lot of joy and a lot of peace in the midst of that. So I'm thankful. What's the big takeaway? Um, as both you and Ronnie have shared a lot of personal pain in this book, what are you hoping to be the big takeaway for readers and for our listeners tonight? Yeah, you know what? I think a couple of things. Number one, we can feel so alone in our churches um, when we do struggle and when we are in dark places. And uh, Ronnie and I hope that this book would kind of be the, the friend that we don't have in churches, you know, the, the person who's willing to be honest about their own struggles and their own sins and their own you know, dark places. So hopefully it'll be a comfort to people on that level. But um, I think the other takeaway really is just a, a simple presentation of the gospel. You know, that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and we acknowledge our sinful hearts and our brokenness, that he'll lift us up, you know, and he'll, um, he'll redeem us and he'll give us peace and he'll give us, you know, the, the clean hearts and the, and the joy of our salvation that David talks about in Psalm 51. And, you know, I think in, in different ways and in different struggles, um, Ronnie and I have both uh, experienced that, and we wanted to, you know, to write the book as a really an outpouring of thanks to uh, to a Lord who would who would do that for us. You know, a couple of really sinful, screwed up guys. We have a lot of observers right now who they themselves are asking questions, who do not currently have a relationship with the Lord. And I know it's easy sometimes to come up with pat answers, but from a sincere standpoint, as as maybe people out there who are not believers are seeking answers and, and asking the why God questions as well, what, what do you tell these people in, in terms of how they can find God in the dark? I think keep asking and keep seeking, and, um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit will find you. You know, I, I think, you know, we serve a Lord who, who finds us and who pursues us and who loves us enough to you know, to, to, to come after us at times. And, you know, I think if, if people are asking questions, that's a great sign. You know, I don't think you, I don't think you get anywhere in this life without asking the hard questions. And, you know, again, you know, there's this, there's this weird tension in the church where you're just so, sometimes you feel like you're supposed to smile and show up and um, everything will be great for you. But, you know, it really wasn't until Ronnie and I started, started asking those hard questions that, um, that we got any peace. And um, so I would say keep asking. I would say, you know, search for truth. I mean, I think we're, we live in a culture where um, it's very cool and it's very sexy to, to be journeying and never arrive anywhere. Um, it's cool to be a seeker, but not a, a, a pursuer of truth. But I would say, you know, seek hard after truth in Scripture and, uh, and see how the Lord reveals himself to you. A look at Finding God in the Dark. Ted Cluck, along with Ronnie Martin, the authors of this new book. And the book, by the way, is recently published by... i got to get my cheaters on here. Boy, reaching that age, are you, Roberts? Bethany House Publishers. And you can find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it through Ted's website at tedcluck.com. And our thanks again to Ted Cluck for visiting with us in this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. 
Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 